Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have a wonderful guest to begin across the nation and worldwide. He's Adam Posen. Yes, running the Peterson Institute, but far more one of our leading economists, including a, a very visible effort at the American Economic Association meetings uh, over the weekend. Adam, I thought much more than normal, these headline, the, these meetings made headlines. What was the lead thought that you got out of the discussions of Posen, Yellen, Bernanke, and others? Uh the main thought, Tom, uh, of course, centered around Ben Bernanke's annual presidential address. Uh, not that he gives it every year, but this year he was president. And it was a major plea, an argument more than plea, that monetary policy can offset the next recession successfully, that there is room to go negative on interest rates, that QE done properly on a large scale can make a big difference. And frankly, there was pushback on that from me uh, to a limited degree from Janet Yellen, his successor, from Larry Summers. Um, and I think this was a really important discussion to have. There's a huge <clears throat> amount of convergence on the idea of public investment uh, in this low inflation, low interest rate environment. Right. And there is a desire to have a constructive <clears throat> front. So I think I think there was a lot going on. There also, for the profession, was a lot going on about changes in the profession where Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen have been really leading some efforts about diversity <clears throat> and less right. sexism, less racism. But that's not as big a deal for the rest of the world. In every Econ 101 book, including Abel Bernanke, there's Chapter 27, which is <laughs> navel-gazing, which is what economists like to do. Alan Blinder of Princeton does that this morning with an essay in the Wall Street Journal, really talking about this 2% target, which is a huge debate. I spoke to Charles Evans of Chicago, uh, a Fed Reserve president in Chicago, about this at length. I think it was six, seven weeks ago yeah. as, as, as well. Define for our audience the 2% debate. Very simply, the idea is that if you go directly for a 0% inflation target, you're probably going to mess things up because there's creeping price changes, and it tends to be deflationary in real terms, if, which sounds contradictory, but anyway, the effect mm -hmm. is deflationary if you sit for too low a target. So all the central banks converged on a 2% target in the late 90s, early 2000s. And Ben Bernanke, Rick Mishkin, a number of people, myself included, all contributed to that. The argument about right now is, <clears throat> excuse me, that the Inflation expectations are, if anything, being dragged to the downside towards zero. You look at bond markets in Europe and Japan and to a lesser degree U.S., they're pricing in no inflation and no interest rate hikes out many, many years. And so the question is, if you get to a recession, you don't have much room to cut rates. Right, right. And, and we're, we're maybe driving down inflation in bad ways and expectations in bad ways by not achieving our inflation target. So the debate is – is it better to raise the inflation target? If you raise the inflation target, can you get there? Exactly. How do you well, get there? I don't want to interrupt, but to me, no, that's no. the heart of the matter is the execution. Okay, anybody can set a target or a strategy right. or a theme, et cetera. But the heart of it to me, Adam Posen, is then you have to affect a program. Is there any proof that a central bank can reflate short of printing money a la uh, you know, the Deutschland of a, a long time ago? 
at the moment, the evidence isn't great. Um, so I, my main pitch in these sessions at AEA was, unfortunately, if you look at Japan, the Bank of Japan over the last five years roughly has done pretty much everything that Bernanke or Krugman or I or many people asked them to do for their own reasons, and including setting inflation target, including doing aggressive QE. And the amount of difference it's made in terms of inflation outcomes has been minimal. On the other hand, I would hate to run the experiment if they hadn't done that what would have happened in Japan. They would have been in deflation, possibly accelerating deflation with more harm. And if I can jump in, I just want to bring the conversation to the story of the moment and talk about the Federal Reserve's involvement in asset prices and its role shaping financial conditions. What we've seen over the last week, quite clearly, is renewed tensions, renewed tensions in the Middle East, and yet a financial market, a set of financial markets that don't show real signs of stress. There is a belief, because we've been conditioned over the last couple of years, that if we get into any difficulty, the Fed will be there to bail us out. And I just wonder from your conversations over the last week, how much discomfort there is with that at the moment, and how uncomfortable should central banks be with this situation? Well, I, I think, I think John, the, the issue is... Sorry. The, the, the central banks recognize that, A, they shouldn't be making judgments on geopolitical matters. They have no way to do that. But B, that going back to 9-11 and before, the impact on macroeconomic outcomes of even oil disruptions, of even major security threats, do not tend to be lasting. Again, that doesn't mean they're not important, but it means that in terms of the course of the things central banks are supposed to talk about, which include inflation, unemployment, financial stability, these national security threats, even very big ones, do not tend to matter that much. And I, I and so they should not be reacting to this. And I think for once, markets are pricing that correctly, that they should not expect much to come out of this. Long-term productive investment is going to be disrupted. Waste of human lives, waste of money, waste of opportunities is going to occur. But in terms of trading relative values, not not really an issue. One last quick point. As was stressed in the se- one the session with a lot of central bank officials uh, Sunday morning at AEA, Phil Plain from the ECB, the Deputy Governor of the Bank of Japan, all pointed out that they've had low rates for a very long time and no asset bubbles in recent years. And so I think people are overly concerned about that. Adam, do you think that's the case, though, when you look at the fixed income market and see at one point last year that we had $17 trillion of negative yielding assets, largely because of central bank involvements in financial markets? I find it difficult to get my hands around the idea that the ECB can sit there comfortably and say that they have had no role in asset prices and asset dislocation to the point that we may even have a bubble. Yeah, I, I realize that that's a very common point of view, but I think the world divides, John, into the people who think we have low rates because central banks took action versus versus we took action because we have low rates. And I think there are very yeah. fundamental causes of these low rates, and it's demographics, it's technology, it's low growth prospects. It's been added to by the Trump administration, creating huge amounts of uncertainty about the trade regime and now security. These all drive down real factors. Yeah. There's no investment demand, and the central banks are merely reacting to that. People would like to say it's the central banks causing it, and the central banks don't always admit that they're not causing it because they don't want to seem powerless. But in my view, it's the other way around. Okay, this is really important. It'll be a huge topic with Chairman Greenspan this morning. What is causing the dearth of of business investment? Yeah, and that's the question. And I tend to be, I have reluctantly, but in recent years, and you and I have talked about this, Tom, come around to sort of a Robert Gordon 
point of view, which yeah. is that there's been some kind of fundamental technological That's where downshift. Alan Greenspan is, too. Alan Greenspan has come around to Northwestern. Yeah, because when you look at the – to me, the, the, the big arguments are, first, that almost all the rich countries, including Japan, Western Europe, U.S., all slowed down in productivity growth at roughly the same time, and it was before the crisis. And that, that to me, suggested some kind of global yeah. fundamental. This has been phenomenal. Adam Posen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. From the American Economic Association meetings. He is with the Peterson uh, Institute. It is not a surprise to those that know international relations that without question the most trenchant essay that we have seen is from Stephen A. Cook. He is with the Council on Foreign Relations. His book, False Dawn, is absolutely definitive and at times heart-wrenching on his experience of the Middle East. And we are thrilled that he join us. He could join us this morning in our Washington studios. Stephen Cook, you stopped this debate distracted by John Bolton yesterday afternoon with your publication in Foreign Policy. You minced no words. We should leave and leave now. What has been the response to your essay yesterday? Well, it's actually been rather surprising. There's been a lot of support for the essay. Uh, I've heard from uh, members of Congress, former members of Congress, former ambassadors, uh, my dissertation supervisor, uh, and a variety of others. It's been uh, a former Marine, two former Marines who served in Iraq. Uh, have what did they say? They've said, look, uh, after now almost 17 years, I, you're calling a spade a spade, uh, that there's not much for the United States to do in Iraq and to take out Qasem Soleimani over uh, over Iraq, a place where Americans are vulnerable for no discernible reason, seems to be right. uh, a, a, a policy that is unnecessarily reckless. You're the pro, I'm the amateur. The night, that night, 2, 2 a.m. in the morning, I stood in the Bloomberg Television Studios in New York and opened the National Geographic Atlas, looked at the map and said, you've got to be kidding me. That was in 2003. You just visited Iraq, which we agree is totally changed from 03, 05, and on and on and on. What did you observe there that says to you, leave and leave now? Well, the bottom line for me in Iraq was that Iraq really isn't a state. Uh, that map no longer exists. There is a territory that we call Iraq, and there are discernible borders. But as the classic definition of a state, of a state that controls the monopoly of violence, that can right. enforce property rights, doesn't exist. You have a number of different, a number, a myriad of armed groups fighting over national resources and impoverishing what would otherwise be a wealthy country. It is simply a river into the Persian Gulf. On the right side is Iranian oil fields. On the left side, Iraq's treasure. What keeps Iran from just not moving west over the river to pick up all those oil fields? It really doesn't have to. Uh, Iran, as every any Iraqi will tell you, Iran is the most influential foreign presence in the country. The protests that broke out in Iraq in October were in part about Iranian dominance. Our killing of Qasem Soleimani has really changed the terms of the debate. Those protesters still want Iran out, but now the Iraqi parliament also wants the United States out.
Stephen, is that the president's objective, to get out of the Middle East? Many people thought it was, and now they're scratching their heads after the last week. Is it still his objective? Well, your question speaks to the strategic incoherence of the administration at this point. Uh, the president says he wants to reduce America's footprint in the Middle East, yet he takes actions that threaten to draw the United States further into the region. Stephen, if the United States retrenches, where does it leave the coalition and the fight against ISIS in the region? Well, it's a very good question. And I think that the United States can continue to fight terrorism without having uh, as large and as vulnerable a footprint as it does in a place like Iraq, where we're really not welcome and that where we're so hamstrung and so impotent that there's not much that we can do. At the moment, as you know, over the last several decades, General Soleimani was at the epicenter of an effort to build out a sheer sphere of influence. I imagine there are some allies, some allies of the United States, that did want them in the Middle East to help them push back against that. Stephen, your thoughts on that situation? Well, I, I think that it's undoubtedly the case that the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Israelis are particularly interested in ensuring that the United States remains in the Middle East to counter uh, Iran. I don't think that anybody is arguing that the United States should just withdraw from the Middle East. Iraq is a, a zombie state. Iraq is not a place where the United States can do much good at this point. But we have lots of presence, and there's a smart way to be in the Middle East. And uh, being in Iraq and killing Qasem Soleimani over Iraq doesn't seem to be a good thing. Stephen, we've heard very little from Israel in the last couple of days. Why? Well, the Israelis are obviously quite concerned about blowback on them. Uh, it's uh, well known that Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy Lebanese terrorist group, has hundreds of thousands of rockets that can be rained down on Israel. Now, Israel's made a lot of progress in uh, developing defenses against this, but the sheer number of rockets in the possession of Hezbollah is uh, deeply worrying to the Israelis, uh, and they do not want to be implicated in this. They don't want to be the focal point of Iran's retaliation. Isn't it quite original, Stephen, that we have all of these various different contradicting interests in the region, and yet we struggle to identify one nation in the Middle East at the moment that was happy with that strike Thursday night into Friday? How original I is that? That is, I think, a very, very good point. Uh, we are at a point in the Middle East where it's very, very hard for American policymakers to define exactly what's important to us. And this leads to a series yeah. of contradictory policies. Look, President <laughs> Trump has been uh, unpredictable, yeah. but this is also a problem with the Obama administration, identifying what's important, developing a strategy, matching up national resources to that strategy, and pursuing those interests. It's been a problem for yeah. some time. All of you nationwide, we welcome you to Bloomberg Surveillance. John Farrow in New York. I'm Tom Keene in Washington. And with us, Stephen A. Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations. And again, you've seen my rave review for his false dawn, which is uh, decidedly not dated on protest, democracy, and violence. Stephen A. Cook, how do you respond to every pro I've ever talked to that said, look, Iran is the one real economy, real nation, real culture, real middle class of the Middle East. Have we just frittered it away with the agony since 1979? Have we handed away forever Persia? Well, it's, I think it's a very, very tough 
issue. There has been a lot of effort on the part of people in Washington to think of ways and how to improve relations with Iran. But Iran has to want to do that as well. We had the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, but then once that was signed, General Qasem Soleimani went out to consolidate and extend Iran's influence around the region. Yeah. That made it very difficult for actually people both on both sides of uh, both sides of the debate to defend uh, right. a, 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 a warming of relations between the two countries. Let me ask you this question, and I asked it of Admiral Stravitas and General Kimmet as well. We've got a lot of people listening with family in the military exposed in a new and different way in the last three or four days. How do you respond when you see troop movements and troop announcements? Bloomberg with the 2,200 Marines moving from the Mediterranean into the Persian Gulf. How do you as a academic respond to these military movements? Well, one of the things that, that concerns me is that we are moving forces back into the Middle East but it's entirely unclear to anybody why we are doing it. If there is an interest, if there is a strategy that is at play here, then we need to know about it. Otherwise, these guys are being sent to the Middle East this for no key. discernible reason. Hey, hey, folks, I'm going to rip up the script here. This is so key. And thank you for your notes on our coverage from Friday. Stephen Cook, it's just simple. The military pros and the academic pros say the same thing. What's the strategy? How do we find a, an American strategy for the Middle East? Well, this is, I think, this is a problem that any, I think any president at this point is going Agreed. to Agreed. I'm have. not going to pin this on President Trump. Uh, that's right. We, the Cold War ended 30 years ago, and the world is changing. And I think that it's very, very hard after now being in the region in this very significant way for almost two decades, <laughs> it's very hard to discern what it is important to the United States. Is it building democratic societies? Is it right. fighting terrorism? Is it oil? Is it Israel? No one has a real clear answer to this. And it's I think it's up to us, well, people, academics, military strategists, and others to, to with, debate with, this with till the, we decide what it is. With the great sacrifice of all in America off of September 11th of 2001, and to steal a line from Fareed Zakaria, what does the post 9-11 world look like to you? It looks like a mess. Uh, there is no real uh, – it, it seems it's a very long time ago in 9-11 where we had this purpose and we've lost it. We've gotten wrapped around the axle on politics in the Middle East, on things that aren't as important to us. It's now time to sit back and consider right. exactly what's important to the United States in this part of the world. Well, thank you so much for coming. It's Stephen A. Cook, folks, of the Council on Foreign Relations. I will put out on Twitter and LinkedIn today his important essay in foreign policy. Pleased to say that Gina Martin-Adams is with us, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. Your thoughts on RBC's call, Gina, then we'll get to the call at Bloomberg. More volatility, closer to trend levels, higher equity markets through the year, though. Where do you come down on that? Uh, you know, I, th I can t I can sympathize with the idea that equity markets continue their advance that they've been in for more than a decade now. I, you know, I don't I don't know about the higher vol call. I think that you'd have to have a pretty significant change in market structure in order to get higher prices with higher volatility. That certainly was the case in the very very late market extension of 1998, 1999 into 2000. 
you know, if that's your call that we're going to go into some kind of melt up phase, then you will see volatility rise as prices rise. I think it's re- I really struggle to make the case that we're in a melt up. I think instead, uh, you know, investors are somewhat hesitant. It's really a story of liquidity driving prices. And that to me means volatility stays low as prices advance. That would be my only issue um, is I, I think you do need to see a big change in the way that markets behave and see a massive shift in sentiment as well, really driving some kind of melt up phase in order to have prices rise with volatility. So rising. let's talk about something important because you've touched on it. I remember in January 2018, I think it was, there was a feeling that maybe there was, was it. This was the melt up, that final stages of a bull market where things start to rip and everyone starts to participate. Two years later, here we are still talking about the same dynamic potentially. Gina, the characteristics of a a late cycle, end of cycle melt up in a bull market, what are they and why is it so different to what we see in the last couple of months? So there are really just several pillars that characterize a melt up in our mind. You have to have rising prices on rising volatility, on deteriorating fundamentals, that means a decelerating earnings growth outlook, on just a massive explosion in optimism reflected in the sentiment surveys. We've been missing a lot of those characteristics at various points in this cycle, but the one that really has, we've struggled to sort of find is that massive optimistic sentiment. I think in fits and starts, you do develop periods in which investors are a little bit more enthusiastic. Late 2017 was one of those periods we did see a major market peak occur in early 2018, but it proved not to be the secular bull market peak because you didn't have enough long-term build and optimism, I would suggest, uh, to really support a massive melt-up peak developing. I think we're in a similar state now. We probably are a little excessively optimistic. You see it in the strategists all caving on their on their forecasts, right? You know, I used to be one of these strategists, and thank God I don't have to do this forecasting anymore because it is really, really, uh, you know, it's tricky when the market is inflating on sentiment and sentiment alone, it's really difficult to predict how far it's going to go. But we haven't seen a massive improvement in fundamentals to really drive those market outcomes right now. So we are probably slightly over-optimistic in the short Mm. run. That said, most of the flows over the course of the last several years have gone into the bond market, not into the equity market. You did see some equity inflows at the end of last year, but not nearly as much as you would normally see when stocks are peaking and sentiment is overly enthusiastic. Gina, in the zeitgeist this morning, is any given company switching from share buyback to dividends, increased dividends? Walk us through that. In this case, it was uh, an essay on Apple Computer, and they really need to get their act together and just switch from share buyback massive to dividends and growth more sprightly. What's the so what there? What's the distinction between share buyback and dividends? I think it's signal more than anything. I I think that traditionally the signal of a switch from sort of a short-term boost to share prices via share buyback to a longer-term commitment to dividend is a signal of a slowing longer-term growth outlook to most investors. And so the result is if you are committing to a long-term higher dividend pay, higher dividend growth over, over an extended period, the investor thinks, fantastic, it is the certainty of income. Yeah. However, it also maybe suggests you don't have a whole lot to do with your cash. You don't have a whole yeah. lot of investment prospects. Maybe your long-term growth rate is going to slow going mm. forward. I mean, you traditionally see the you know slow growing stables more yeah. defensive plays as the bigger dividend players in the equity market. Gina Martin Adams with us as we're on the Dow twenty nine thousand watch. I'm kidding, Gina. <laughs> 
manufacturing has been a tough spot. On the ISM, I should point out, on that particular reading yeah. of that sector, not terrific. Services holding up, that's the story worldwide, particularly in Europe, and I wonder if that continues. One of the great themes of that has been Neil Dutta's excellence at Renaissance Macro. He's really been quite good of pushing against the certitude of the gloom crew. Uh, Neil Dutta, let us uh, reframe right now your call 12 months forward on GDP. What is that statistic? Well, I mean, if you look at your Bloomberg News consensus, uh, they have GDP uh, running basically below 2% all year. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we print something, um, you know, close to two and a half for 2020. Um, I think the composition of growth is improving. I mean, uh, you know, you look at, I mean, investment spending will probably be a little bit better and inventory investment certainly will be a little bit better. Uh, the trade deficit somewhat narrower. We've seen the dollar come off the boil of yeah. late. That's going to support exports and, and help narrow the trade gap. So, um, you know, it's not an economy that's off to the races, but you know, it's always about this job is all about what is the market pricing in and what do you think the likely outcome is going to be? And then pick your battles with the consensus wisely. And I think the consensus is a little bit too cautious uh, on growth for 2020, which is one of the reasons why I think this upward march in equity prices in the U.S. will probably continue. You have been, so that's my view. Well, you've been, but Neil, you've been wonderfully resilient about this versus the gloom crew. And you've just explained well, so is the economy, how... Tom. Well, right. but, but you explain how we get there. How do you look at the resiliency of the American consumer? Is that a foundation for your optimism, or is it almost a one-off to your optimism? Well, I mean, certainly uh, consumer balance sheets, household balance sheets, are in a much better place than they've been in years. Um, you know, look at the household savings rate. It's actually been rising even as consumer spending has been doing reasonably well. We've seen, um, in addition, uh, financial obligations ratios at rock-bottom levels. So the household balance sheet is very strong. The upside risk, of course, is that, you know, we've seen this recovery in equity prices. People feel better about their situation. They begin to draw down some of that precautionary savings, and the consumer actually does even better than what it's been doing. So, um yeah, I mean, I think the consumer is basically running in place. The risks are to the upside. Um, um, and we know that. I mean, that's also reflected in the housing market. It's sort of been the one thing that no one's been talking about. But, I mean, hey, look, I mean, new home sales are up, what, 10 to 15% over the last 12 months? Those are signed contracts on new houses. Those, that leads construction activity. Uh, so I think construction activity is also likely to be a tailwind for growth in 2020. So, you know... Um, 2019 wasn't a great year for the economy. Uh, it was mostly about consumers. Uh, I do think we'll have a better, ba- a better balance uh, in, the, in, in the year ahead. Neil, you know how this works. There's always a data point somewhere to confirm your price for anyone looking at the economy right now. And if you're bearish on the economy, you might be focused on manufacturing. So two questions from me. The best read to get on manufacturing right now, you've done some terrific work on pointing out the difference between, say, the ISM and the PMI. And my follow-up question to that, Neil, would be the importance, even if you do get a read of weakness in manufacturing, the importance of the overall economy and how that's diminished over the last 10 years. Just your point on those two things. Well, I mean, so, the, I mean, there's an issue between the two major surveys of one of, of sample size and construction, right? So the market PMI actually overweights the forward-looking indicators, like new orders. While the ISM equally weights them all, um, uh, and so um, 
we've seen uh, we've seen um, in addition uh, it's a sample size, right? Market PMI has 800 versus ISM of 300. Some have made the point that uh, you know the market PMI is less sensitive to what's going on in the global economy. The ISM is more sensitive to what's happening globally. Uh, so that's something else to think about. Um, but you know, when I look at manufacturing, um, it comes back to the inventory cycle, John. Um, if you look at even the ISM, you still have more of the server respondents telling you that their inventory levels are too low than too high. That's very unusual with the ISM sitting this far below 50, okay? So my sense is that you get an inventory tailwind, and that's going to necessitate further gains in manufacturing production. So uh, I would be surprised to see the ISM um, still sitting where it, where it is, you know, this time in, let's say, three to four months. So again, it's about... It's not about where the data point is right now, because that's all the bears are talking about. It's about why is it going to stay here in three months? And that's a much harder call to make. I think it's not likely to stay there. It's likely to go higher. Neil, you expect that inventory bill to be front-loaded this year. How do you think that's going to play out through the course of 2020? Well, it means that, you, I mean, it's not just the U.S. It's also, I mean, look at Europe. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the pace of contraction in inventories in, in Germany, for example, and we haven't seen anything like that since the sovereign debt crisis. So it, in other words, it wouldn't take much in the way of global growth and you know, European growth stabilization to, to, pro, to prompt gains in production activity in those economies. Yeah. So I think you have a bit of a synchronized uh, inventory cycle um, in the Western world uh, over the first six months of 2020. Neil, do we need to get used to subpar growth? I mean, there was a time it was morning in America, 3% plus, on we go. The president has hit a real resonance with the American people in search of this. Do you, as a card-carrying optimist, give up on 3% plus growth? So I think the only way you get to 3% plus growth, Tom, in any sort of sustained way is if you see a uh, inflection in productivity. I mean, productivity growth historically is a process. It doesn't turn on a dime. Uh, what you can say is that on the plus side, you know, if you look at the last, let's say, five years, productivity has been growing a little over 1% at an annual rate. Now, that's very low, uh, but if you look at the five years before that, it was basically half a percent. So yeah. we've sort of been slowly growing productivity. Um, I would say the one positive that I've seen lately is that you know, even though we've had a weak investment year um, in the last year, um, I do think capital deepening is right. growing at a more normal normal rate than it had been. And so, you know, maybe there's a chance for productivity to grow well, something looking closer to normal this year. I mean, maybe one and a half percent. But again, it, it, it's, a, it's a process. Okay. Um, but, let, you know, look, to... I mean, do we need the, the question is, do we need three and three percent growth? I mean, I think, you know, look, we're talking about we're going to have we've had, you know, Improvement in median household income, uh, declines in uh, in uh, measures of, of poverty, uh, low unemployment, and that's all happened, you know, with growth running mm-hmm. slightly above two. So, um, you know, I mean, to me, I think two and a half is pretty good. I, I mean, this is so important. We have capital deepening. With, with with your optimism, does labor get a better share of what's out there, or is that just a, from a bygone time? I mean, certainly, I mean, that's what the Fed is trying to engineer, right? And some agree. Kind of totally agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. And, yeah. uh, and, we ha- when we, and we have seen, I mean, certainly we have seen some increase in labor share of income. I mean, one, one of the interesting things I think we're seeing right now, though, in the labor market is, is sort of this, um, 
you know, not necessarily falling labor share, but shifting of where the labor income is going, because we're seeing, um, you know, folks at the low end see much faster wage growth, but interestingly enough, folks at the high end seeing slower wage growth. So that premium that the high end had been sort of commanding or compelling isn't, isn't, uh, isn't as strong as it had been before, maybe because the labor market's tighter. Hey, Neil, always great to get your thoughts. Happy Neil, New Year to you and the team. Neil Dutta there, Renaissance Macro Head of Economic Research, joining us on the upside risks to the economy in the United States of America through 2020 and ahead of Payrolls Friday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.